check out our story to see some behind-the-scenes footage of the behind-the-scenes of the behind-the-scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Welcome to Cast Recording, the Starcatcher podcast. Starcatcher is a community-based Jerusalem theater company, and this season we're putting on the classic Sondheim musical, Into the Woods. I'm Nuria Levy, an assistant director at Starcatcher, and each episode I'll be speaking with members of the Starcatcher cast and crew about musical theater in general and Into the Woods in particular, and giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the production. Join us for just a moment in the woods. This week's episode is A Bean Can Begin an Adventure, in which we'll discuss how we conceptualize the show and the ideas behind our set design, featuring special guests Ailee Kaplan-Wildman, Danny Friedman, and Candace Nemoff. Follow Starcatcher on social media to get more information about our production. Hi everyone, welcome! Hey! So happy to have you on the podcast. And I thought that we'd just go around and introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the world of design for theater. Hi, I'm Elie. Uh, I got involved in the world of design for theater when I was, you know, four years old and started building little puppet theaters at home. And I've basically been doing it ever since. And I think it's interesting to, to, to see myself as a designer because as I work in other areas in the arts and production world, I remember that I'm really a designer and a theater person. And wherever I go, whether it's a conference or a, a paper, you know, cutout, pop-up, whatever it is, it comes back to theatricality um, and, and like design for theater, thinking about focus and surprise and, you know, a, a progression through time. So all the things about design in theater are things that are like really with me all the time. Hi, I'm Candace. So I always, uh, from a young age, was always interested in art and design, and my dad loved to have me use power tools. Um, so I grew up with art and tools all the time, and um, I was too shy to act in a show. So I realized there's a whole backstage world, and I just fell in love with it. And just since then, it's like anything that's design art related, especially theater, I'm just always like, me, I'll do it. What do you want? Like, so excited. Um, and I'm just so happy to be in Jerusalem and like found my community here. It's amazing. It's the best. Hi, I'm Danny. I think my answer would have to begin in high school when I majored in art and then started like tinkering with that. And that ended up bringing me to study architecture. Although on stage, I've mostly been acting and dancing and recently choreographing. This year, I kind of went back to the more arts and craftsy part as a set designer now with almost an architecture degree. So maybe I'm even qualified. <laughs> I can say that scenery is not meant to be like architecture. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> yeah, that was always my favorite thing is because I liked architecture, but I never was like sure I liked all the standards and requirements and codes and stuff and then I found scenic design and I was like perfect let's make it as unsafe as possible yeah pretty much ah that's a but great it's pretty <laughs> unsafe but pretty exactly. yes that's what we're going for 
Ailey, I wanted to start by asking you about concept in general. Starcatcher shows always have a very strong visual concept. And as someone who has been part of and has designed so many of those shows, I wanted to ask you how you even start that process. What do you start thinking about when you think about a visual concept for a show? That's a really good question. And it it kind of goes down to like the heart of what theater is for me as a visual, tactile medium. What theater is to me and what we do as people who are putting on a show is that we have to take a script, which is just words on a page, and put it on stage. And it's true that Starcatcher does a lot of shows that have been produced many times before, and you can always see how a lot of productions are just trying to kind of, you know, stick to what has been done with this show. Um, And so one important thing at Starcatcher is that we make sure to shed away all of the ideas of what people think the show should be. And we look at the script and decide, what do we think the show should be? How do we think these words can move from the page to the stage? And how do we, you know, what's that link? What is the link that allows those ideas that are in the show to be expressed visually? That's sort of our challenge. What we have to do first is define what it is we're trying to say with this production. And we also have to define all the things that we need to solve. Every script has all sorts of, a long list of things that need to be solved from really specific things like three chairs or a table. We really hate tables. So we really (laughs) try to not have tables, but sometimes we really need a table. Actually, that's that's a good trivia question. How many Starcatcher shows have had a table in them. <laughs> All right, I can't quite think of the answer now, but it's a very low number. <laughs> um, so people who are familiar with our work can try to think through that. Um, so in this translation from the page to the stage, we have to think of what we call a concept, right? Which is what I always define as something that works on a visual and a conceptual level. So some sort of idea that solves all of our issues that need to be solved from seating and furniture and entrances and exits to very crazy moments like, uh, you know, what are some crazy moments we've had in Chicago? We had to hang someone. We had to hang you. Yes, (laughs) I remember. (laughs) So so, uh, we had to hang someone. Or in Pippin, we had to have like the entire set get, you know, ripped apart. And uh, so, so everything for those climactic moments, you need to make sure that your concept, your idea is working towards those climactic moments. Um, and then another issue that we try to bring to Starcatcher is even though we're trying to s- solve all these things and we did set that does all this stuff and we're doing what at one point was a Broadway show with a huge amount of scenery, at Starcatcher we try to do at least what we call minimalist. And The minimalism doesn't necessarily mean how big the set is, but it means that everything is supposed to serve as many functions as possible. So if we do need a table, God forbid, then great. How do we use that table as much as possible? And how do we, you know, not make it come on and off and on and off, but rather, you know, be the table the whole time? So that's the big challenge. And coming up with a concept is something that we usually spend all summer on because it has to answer so many questions and it's really important to get it right. 
And we're going to try to do that also for Into the Woods with Danny's amazing concept. Yeah, I feel like not many people imagine us working all summer on the show because it's technically, you know, vacation time. <laughs> but, but it really is such a long process. So Danny, can you tell us a little about the concept that you guys have come up with specifically for Into the Woods? So, um, like Elise said, we've been kind of thinking of the concept and chewing it over throughout the summer. The idea for our concept of Into the Woods is, well, I'll start with what is often done with Into the Woods, is use the concept of storytelling and words, which is both the framework for the story, but also a big part of the themes in the story, as kind of the, the material basis for what the set design looks like, for how the trees are made. So we're talking books and pages and, and so on. What we thought would be interesting uh, in this case is to think of the narrator not as someone who tells a pre-written story, but as a person who initiates the stories that we're seeing on stage, which kind of takes us back to medieval, um, kind of the printing press was, was a big thing that we, we kind of went to. So the time in history when books started to be published and written. So like the pivotal time, if we're talking about of, of printing, is Gutenberg and his Bible and kind of that first time that um, oral stories that have shaped societies and cultures and concepts of morality and education kind of be printed for the first time and set in words on paper. So we thought that would be an interesting place to start in having the narrator kind of be um, a person, well, I mean, we can call him Gutenberg, but a printing press operator and his operating the machine is what sets off the different storylines. Um, and he kind of gets woven in and out of the story like we know in the show, uh, but knowing that he's the one who's initiating the, the storytelling and the interaction that he has with the different characters we thought is a really interesting uh, opportunity to have him be slightly different in his role in the show than, than in other times. Um, and then when, when thinking of printing press, then we have the machine itself, which you will see on our stage, which will do all sorts of cool things to set things in motion in the show, but also this amazing world of raw paper. So instead of using wood, as woods and building the set made of pieces of wood, we kind of go into the world of paper, raw material paper. So it's paper and, and brown cardboard and use those to build the trees and the houses and the, and the objects that we see throughout the show in kind of alluding to the fact that everything happening on stage is being set by this, by this machine who's being set by this person. Um, so everything kind of comes in and out of rolls of paper, which, which can be uh, cylindrical, they can be flat, we use them in all sorts of different ways, and we kind of found that we thought that would be a cool limitation to set off different creative decisions on how we use this roll of paper, which gets put in and out of the printing press, also as the different objects and scenery in the show. Without spoiling too much, can you give us a hint of how this paper translates into something that we'll see on stage? Oh, what's like a not such a spoiler moment that we can pick to reveal? I mean, I think the, the opening scene has a lot of bread in it. 
there's like the baker and Little Red Riding Hood. There's this whole exchange surrounding how much bread she takes. So bread is something that it almost looks like paper already. You know, like you just sort of can easily make loaves of bread out of paper. Um, and there's there's so many other things. The trees themselves. The what is it? The woods are just trees. The trees are just paper. And the paper <laughs> was once trees. Tree. <laughs> so there is going to be a table in this production That's if you count true. the printing press. Right. As a table. Right. Well, we will probably use a table as a base, but let me guarantee those coming to see the show, it's not going to look like a table. It's going to look like a really cool printing press. It's going to have all these working, functioning mechanisms that are going to be beautiful and move and be made of cogs and all sorts of stuff we like to see uh, move on stage. Presumably, this machine is going to look like a machine and not be made of paper. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of contrast between all the paper that's going to be on stage and the more mechanical aspect of this printing press? So, okay, so I'll start by saying that we're going to have a gradient of materials in the show that kind of represent um, different aspects in the story coming to different degrees of life. Um, from starting from the printing press, that's going to be its own kind of realm with the na- with the narrator, which I'll describe in a second. But then we have the paper itself inside the printing press, which is going to, you know, the printing press is going to print stuff out and stamp things out. And then from that, different bits of the show are going to be made of paper and cardboard. But for example, the costumes we're treating as kind of the most Um, developed portions of the story and they're going to be you know the colors that we expect that are very important to the show so it's not all going to be beautiful shades of brown Uh, there will be red and yellow and gold and white yes not too much yellow (laughs) no not too much yellow but one one head of hair that will be yellow enough Um, and if we go back to the printing press so the time frame that i mentioned that we're going for the narrator's world Um, is this late medieval, early Renaissance uh, Gutenberg um, era. So the machine itself is not going to be made of paper. It's not going to be made of cardboard. It's going to be wood and metal, and it's going to be made to look like the Gutenberg printing press or allude to the Gutenberg printing press, which is like this very cool machine, like one of the first machines um, that kind of changed the world. Yeah, so... Again, in order for it to, to work like a printing press and do all these things, it's going to be made of wood and, and metal and the materials that we expect in the narrator's universe then propelling things in the paper universe of the story. So speaking of these creative limitations, Candice, what are the challenges that you foresee on working on this set and on this concept? Um, well, I think the main limitation right now is the fact that everything is paper, so it's a lot more fragile than our standard wood, <laughs> um, which means that a lot of times we might have to redo a set piece or something in the middle of a production, which which could be a little challenging. But um, at the same time, it means that we'd be really good at making whatever paper bread we need to make because we'd be making a lot of it all the time. <laughs> You will have a very specific set of skills <laughs> yes, for, for this production. I mean, I'll also say, as what Candice was saying, that the fact that the paper is, let's say, cheap and fragile 
we'll be using that in different moments in the show. Have you seen past productions of Into the Woods or even the current one that's on Broadway now? Was there anything that inspired you from things that you've seen before or anything that you thought, we're not doing that? I would say that we do a lot of shows that have been done many times and Into the Woods might be the show that has been done the most times and the most ways. And if anything, the fact that you can go online and see like a bajillion different versions of Milky White the Cow and a bajillion different versions of how the set looks, it just meant to me that we could do anything um, and, and that we have no specific iconic thing that we need to pay homage to in any way because it, it's like the page is completely empty, which to me was exciting and terrifying. Um, and I'm really happy that we came up with this amazing concept and, and a concept that I think is new, that I think has not been done before, which is really exciting. So would you say you are excited and scared? <laughs> yes. When I look at our schedule and our to-do list, I am excited and scared, but mostly scared. <laughs> I want to know if there were any specific moments in the script that you read that jumped out at you as this would be a really cool challenge or this is a very scary thing that we need to figure out? I have one and I hope this isn't a spoiler. So hopefully you listeners get to, to hear this before you come see the show. But an important moment in the show that we never actually see happen is the baker's father going in and stealing the beans. We hear about it in this very dense, brilliant rap in the prologue, but it's besides fine. in the movie, I haven't seen any production that that portrays that really kind of the seed of the seed, the the, the origin <laughs> the origin of of most of the storyline of the show, um, and we thought that's a great opportunity to use all the different ideas we have in the concept, the material concept, to bring that moment to life, so that when the audience, any of those who don't know the show, kind of see that thing happen, not just through the words, sometimes brilliant lyric writing, but also visually. I'll go back to something that Yaeli said, our director, a bunch of times when we were going through our list of moments that we have to solve. And it was kind of like, you know, there's so many. And in other shows, a moment like a certain transformation or a certain, you know, um, a certain breaking point that, that happens in the script, in many shows, that would be the pinnacle of the script and you would have everything work towards that moment. But in this show, there are many moments like that, and you'll have a moment that seems extremely significant and a big deal for a character, and, and then right after it, there'll be another one for a different character. And so there's something about how, you know, we can't let one moment, you know, d dictate how we, how we put together the show. It's all many moments in the woods. And one of the one of the cool things we did as a first step in in manifesting the concept is we had a special rehearsal with the actors where we just it was sort of like a workshop where we just brought bunches of different kinds of paper and cardboard and we we weren't rehearsing any scene and we weren't in character. We just came together a bunch of people in a room with a lot of paper and some scissors and you know we gave them little exercises and challenges and tons of interesting stuff came out from that that have now been integrated into different parts of the show. 
Yeah, that was a really cool rehearsal. If you were following our Insta story, <laughs> you have seen it. But Candace is someone who's worked on a bunch of Jerusalem theater productions by now. Like, for someone who just got here, you've been quite busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not even a year yet. Yeah. yeah. You've done how many shows so far? Four, and Oliver technically coming up, so... Yeah, on that. yeah. That's, yeah, that's a lot. Right. <laughs> so how do you, uh, you know, how do you see the process of putting a show together and like, what are the fun things about it? What are the things that community theater manages to do well in the spirit of set design? Well, community theater is so good at just asking for resources from people they know and connections. And it's really cool, like how many new connections you make just, oh, I need this one thing. And then you say, oh, I know this person over there that has it, go meet them. And you just like get the most random connections too. Um, I think that's really helpful. And we have volunteers who will hopefully come and help uh, the same way they did last year with Heather's. So we will hopefully have an army of uh, set uh, minions for you to command. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> so speaking of new challenges, this year we are performing in a new theater. We uh, have been performing at Beit Mazia for a few years, and we're moving to a newly renovated theater in Jalal Bachal. So... Does that make a difference in terms of set design, in terms of how we can construct things or how we even think about things? Well, I think it's definitely affected the way we thought of building the set and designing the set in more ways than one. Uh, one exciting thing for us is that like a third of our audience is sitting in a balcony, which is a perspective on the stage we're performing on that we're kind of not used to taking into consideration, but is kind of cool for a show that has, you know, vertical elements, essentially, um, the woods, obviously, I think having a, a bigger slope and people sat in different heights and seeing the stage from like such a varying uh, degree of perspectives is kind of a fun challenge for us in both designing the set, but also staging it as I'm sure you, Nuria, have <laughs> taken into consideration in the rehearsal process. Yeah, of course I did, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Alam, I'll correct yeah. us. This is not a new theater, which is what's so exciting to me. This is where I grew up in community theater. I started in like with Jest, the Jerusalem English-speaking theater, in The Music Man when I was, uh, I guess, 13, on that stage, uh, and I was in the chorus, and since that show, I worked on every single jazz show that there was backstage in various capacities and then, you know, did shows in cooperation with Jess between Starcatcher and Jess and then founded Starcatcher. And, and so it's really fun to feel like coming back home to this theater, which fortunately has been re <laughs> refit with some better equipment um, and it's in really good shape. And yeah, it makes a big difference in how we think about the show. Um, it's, a, it's a huge stage and it allows for, you know, the woods to really be big and we can have things happening in different corners of this, of this stage. Um, Into the Woods has all these teeny tiny scenes. It's just like, oh, three lines between these two characters and then, oh, these six characters here, but they don't really say anything and then they go off and 
it's so so having the bigger stage again as i'm sure you're finding in rehearsal it's like super helpful yes it is and i will say from a staging perspective those three line scenes are the bane of our existence <laughs> sure. in terms of sure. scheduling and staging but it will be amazing on this fabulous stage with the beautiful set that you will build for us great yes <laughs> Moving on to a new segment on our podcast, Can't See the Woods for the Trees. This is a very text-heavy show, and it can be easy to miss some of the nuances, so we're going to take this opportunity to have a bit of a deep dive into the words and do some textual analysis. We're going to take a look at two random lines from the show and see if we can find any connections we wouldn't necessarily have thought of otherwise. This segment is inspired by the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which employs many different methods of this kind of textual analysis. So... Danny, please pick a number between 1 and 198. 169. Okay, Candace, please open your hymnal to page 169. <laughs> okay, Eli, please close your eyes and randomly stab at the page. Paper Candace, page, you have to... to it's, it's this side? Oh my god, it's so sad! <laughs> I love this line! Okay, wait, wait. Can, Can I say it yeah, or so not? Yeah, so Eli, read it out okay, for us. Okay, I'm going to do the couplet. Can't we just pursue our lives with our children and our wives? Or our boyfriends, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So let before we move on to our next line, can we give some context for this quote? Who says it? Oof. When in the show? Eli, you from, seem to have oh a God. very I mean, deep listen, connection. All the songs in Act 2, everybody just like bring a handkerchief, right? Like Act 2 is just, it's just like bomb after bomb after bomb. And this one is... Um, well, I don't know how much I can say about it in terms of the plot, but it's it's a song about family in, in a certain sense and the uh, challenges that the previous generation leaves for us um, and what we as, the, as our generation are going to leave for our children. Um, and I have two children and uh, it's just... So, I, a lot of people actually hate this song, uh, but I, I like <laughs> I do it. <laughs> I like it. Um, and when performed well, it is really, really beautiful. And this uh, line is just sort of saying, like, why, why do we have to have all this baggage and, and this worry about the previous generation and this worry about what we're going to give to our next generation? Can't we just pursue our lives with our children and our wives? Like, can't we just you know, no more. Why, why do we have to have all this extra? So it's said by the baker in, in the song, No More. So let's find our second line and then we'll see what connections we can find. All right, I'm going to pick a page number. Ili, you will be in charge of the book now. Okay. And Candice, you'll point and uh, read out the line. Okay. Cool. I'm going to pick page number 111. Okay. Yeah, two. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about it, but it's right. uh, very Act Two centric. Okay. 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 Please read out the line. But despite some minor inconveniences, they were all content. Okay. Whoa. Well, let's give that one some context okay, as do you well. Want to give Danny, Danny, Danny the can you tell us? This is said by the narrator in the opening of Act Two, and uh, the song called "I'm So Happy" or "So Happy." Um, right before the characters then, or rather right after the characters just went on to vent about the consequences of their wishes in Act 1. Yes. So 
I will read out both lines one after the other, um, and let's think if we can find anything that connects these two lines. So our first line was, can't we just pursue our lives with our children and our wives? And our second line is, but despite some minor inconveniences, they were all content. No, but it's like the exact, they're saying the same thing. Yeah. Or what, I mean, or the opposite thing. But yeah, they're like, it's as if they're connected. Despite some minor inconveniences, they were all content. I mean, it, it's, it's the beginning and the end of Act 2. So at the beginning of Act 2, we are still at just past the happily ever after where they're kind of um, complaining, but, but actually things are great, certainly compared to what, what comes later. Um, and then, so, so it's about just being content with what you have and being like in good shape. And then that's what the second line is, is um, yearning for. Can't we just be content with, with our, you know, our situation and where we're at and not have to deal with too much else? I think when the narrator says it in the beginning of Act 2, and maybe that's because I then know what happens at the rest of Act 2, but I think he's saying it cynically, or it doesn't exactly mean that they're quite content and that the inconveniences are minor to the characters. I think they may then gain perspective on how content they should have been. Right. Um, Yeah, I I was going to... I was trying not to... I don't know how much we're... But I guess everyone knows that in Act 2, everything hits yeah, the fan. Yeah, no, we're not really concerned about spoiling the plot of the okay, show so okay. much. Um, I mean... I think the word content in general tends to be like... Like, it could be like, we are okay, but it, it could also be like, we think we're okay, but we're really not. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point, especially in the context of who says the lines, Uh our first line was said by the baker, and the second one is said by the narrator, who, without spoiling too much, both have a complicated relationship with happy endings. Um, and, and with each other. And with each other, for sure. Uh, and with the whole concept of family. You know, uh, the narrator in the beginning of Act Two is really talking about everyone else but himself. He is not someone who has a story uh, in that context. So he's talking about all the different families who were created in Act 1, who, despite some minor inconveniences, are content, or, you know, if we look at it cynically, and as Candace was saying, content can be happy, and it can also be just kind of okay. Um, And the baker, who at the end of Act 2 talks about his own family, he talks about it in broad terms with our children and our wives, but we really feel that he is talking about his own wife and his own child, children, uh, you know, prospect for a family. Yeah. I think we, we've addressed this in previous episodes, I believe, but the degrees of involvement of the narrator um, in the story and specifically his relation with some of the characters in the story that he's directly related to um, his detachment and the fact that he's narrating from the outside in the beginning of Act 2 is part of the problem that the baker then faces when he says his own line. Like the the outsideness, the distance that the narrator has from the characters he's commenting on, the baker being one of them, um, is then something that the baker 
needs to face and decides to face when he sings the song with the mysterious man. Yeah, just to strengthen that point, the narrator calls them they, and the baker uses the word our. So the baker is very much involved and in it, um, while the narrator maintains, at least at that moment, his outsider perspective of this is their story, not mine. And that goes back to our concept, which is about storytelling and the different ways that we tell stories and uh, the way that our storytelling in the show evolves from something printed and maybe to, to uh, something else, which is, you know, at, at the end of the, of the show, there's another direct moment of storytelling. And what is really interesting to us in creating this concept is how do we create a difference between the beginning of the show, which starts with Once Upon a Time, and the end of the show, which also ends with Once Upon a Time. It's time for the Three Midnights Trivia. You will have three multiple choice questions to answer. Just a reminder, this is a team effort. You are not competing against each other. Oh, good. Question number one. Which of the following musicals does not feature a revolving or turntable stage? Ooh. Okay, let's okay, do it. Okay. Tell us, tell us. We're ready. <laughs> I love this. Hamilton. <laughs> a. Hamilton. Nice. B. Hades Town, C, Beetlejuice, or D, Oklahoma the Revival. Which revival of Oklahoma? No, the current one. Play, the, yes, the, play, the current. Daniel the, Fishman. The, yeah, the latest one. Okay. okay, which one does not have a? Revolving which one does stage? not have a revolving stage? Okay, I think I know. It's Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma I, did not. Have, yeah, I no, saw no, it, it and it didn't have one. Yeah, no. So I one. haven't seen Beetlejuice, but I guess it must have a revolving stage. Yeah, Beetlejuice does not have a revolving stage, and according to what I read, Oklahoma the revival does. Ooh, it's so. Wait, we, we may no, not. No, there's a different revival. Oh, never mind. Oh, okay. okay. No, okay. Because I thought Beetlejuice didn't have one. No. But there was okay. So there's a revival. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is crazy. But there was a revival. Uh, in London that had a, a really good revival that had a revolving stage and then there was a revival the that Hugh just Jackman happened one? no Hugh no. Jackman is That's Music like, Man no no but Hugh Jackman okay there oh. was another Oklahoma production at the National Theatre with a yes. revolving stage that, that one that one had a revolving stage but yeah, there was okay, a well, revival of Oklahoma that was in New York about two years ago or whatever I guess it was before Corona that was amazing and did not have a revolving stage. Okay, yes. I will say okay. that's probably my mistake in the research, but I will... Well, it's just in the phrasing of the Yes, question. okay. There's a lot of Oklahoma Wait, can, can we true. try and name other shows we remember had revolving yes, stages? Yes, please in? do, because it was so hard okay, to Shrek, find. Shrek, the musical, had a revolving stage. Oh, yeah. crazy revolving... It had yeah. a revolving stage with three other revolving stages right. in it. Right, that... Uh, these must all have been in the same theater, or do no, no, people no, no. have to just build? They, no. ma they make they the revolving make stages. Well, when I was searching for musicals that have revolving stages, I found many websites that offered to sell me a revolving turntable stage. <laughs> oh, so apparently, we, you can just buy it. <laughs> well, they make yeah. one for Hamilton actually. When they they have two touring companies that are touring Hamilton in America, and so when they were in rehearsal, they actually built a revolving stage in the rehearsal room. 
Oh, wow. Because that makes it's so much money sense. It, 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 well, it's, it's, it, well, it's so critical to a lot of the choreography. Money. It yeah, saves yeah. money because it saves them time in the theater, which costs more. So it's better to have it in the rehearsal room mm-hmm. and for everyone to just know what they do with this thing. And then they get into the theater and they're like, oh yeah, the stage is turning and that makes sense. And I know where to be. Okay, so I'm going to cheat and say that the in the National Theatre in London, there is the big stage that has... The kind of in the round one, yeah, yeah, stage. and so the revival of Follies, which they did there recently with the Melda Staunton, use a revolving stage. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a beautiful production. Uh, Groundhog Day, which was a great musical that didn't do that well, uh, had a revolving stage with with, I think it had a revolving stage with a revolving stage within it, and within that there were three other revolving stages. Nice. Well. Question number two. Which of the following musicals features a full-sized helicopter on stage? A. Catch Me If You Can. B. Miss Saigon. C. South Pacific. Or four, Hair. First of all, you get a lot of points for putting in good um, fake answers. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, I worked yeah. really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but still we know but, the answer. Yeah, Miss Saigon. <laughs> right. Correct, yes. Miss Saigon has like a yeah, crazy helicopter. I like, I like the other ones. I was like, there could be helicopters. There really could yeah. be. Right? Like, yes. so now it's not out of the realm okay. of possibility. So it's totally now Starcatcher is going to do like, you know, um, South Pacific with a helicopter. Right. Yes. That sounds great. For sure. Great. Going on the list for next year. And there's a, by the way, there's a theater company in like somewhere in the south of the United States that did Titanic, like the musical Titanic, kind of on a boat and with people going into the actual water. And they did Miss Saigon with real helicopters landing during the show. Oh, my God. Oh, fancy. Yes. Again, money. (laughs) To quote Danny, isn't money nice? (laughs) Great. Final question. Which current Broadway show's set is made of mechanical gears and cogs that are also used to bring elements on and off the stage? A. Kinky Boots B. Come From Away C. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Or D. Wicked Okay, I mean, I, I think we all agree the answer is Wicked. But in Kinky Boots, there is a... Um, oh, that's true. Ooh. What's it called? Uh, he got you. There's a conveyor belt, and it brings people onto the stage. Conveyor belt, thank you. There's it like, brings people and... And drag and, queens. Well, and they are people. Yeah. <laughs> are people. <laughs> I know. Also, no, but they just come in. And it's a cool moment, where it's just like... <laughs> they do. All they get drag queens like come off of a conveyor belt. What, but what, how did you phrase the question? How do you define these that machines? That which... Uh, set is made of mechanical gears and cogs. Yeah. Okay, so I think so wicked. I mean, wicked is right. yeah. Correct. Wicked. Yes, it is wicked, and I, you know, Kinky Boots was <laughs> a wild card for me because I have not seen it, so it was. Uh, but it, but, it but the question good. stands. Yes, yeah. the yes. question stands. Yes. Okay, good job, guys. Good job. That was great. And so I'll just remind everyone of our additional bonus uh, question, which is now to the readers, which is. Which or how many Starcatcher productions have had a table on stage? Please answer in the comments and a prize will be given to the first one who answers correctly. And by prize, I mean something very symbolic. Don't expect anything big. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Cast Recording, a Starcatcher podcast. Let us know what you thought about our discussion and if there's anything else you'd be interested to hear more about. 
You can follow the Starcatcher page on Facebook or follow Starcatcher JLM on Instagram, and make sure to check us out on TikTok. Thanks to Ailee Kaplan-Wildman, Danny Friedman, and Candice Nemoff for coming on this episode. This podcast was produced and edited by Nuria Levy. See you next time for another Moment in the Woods. Thank you.